already know that we have an unconventional president, a non-politician president who's been extremely, extremely successful in three and a half years. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. The Republican National Convention is underway this week in Charlotte, North Carolina. In contrast to the Democratic National Convention last week, which was entirely online as a precaution against uh, spreading the coronavirus, on Monday, 336 Republican delegates representing 50 states, six territories, and Washington, D.C., gathered in Charlotte to renominate Donald Trump as their candidate for president. Among them were six Republican delegates from Vermont. Today on the Vermont Conversation, we're joined by several of those delegates. Deb Bilodeau is the Vermont Party Chairwoman of the Vermont Republican Party. Jay Shepard is Vice Chair of the Republican National Committee and a National Committeeman from Vermont. He's attending his fifth Republican National Convention. And Jansen Wilhoyt is a former state representative who ran for Attorney General in Vermont in 2018. He is a public defender. Uh, welcome all of you to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, Dave. Good morning, um, Dave. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Deb, let's start with you. What are the highlights of the Republican National Convention for you so far? Um, I, I think it was exciting to be with everyone Monday. It was a, a lovely ballroom set up. Um, everyone was socially distanced and uh, the speakers were great. Uh, obviously, people know that the president appeared as well as the vice president. And um, I think there was a lot of spirit and enthusiasm at the convention. And uh, even though it was a non-conventional convention, I, I think it, it went very well and people walked away with um, uh, spirit and enthusiasm, as I said. Um, one of the more dramatic moments uh, in, on the first night was the speech by former Fox News host Kimberly Guilfoyle. Uh, she's the girlfriend of Donald Trump Jr. Um, and she said that Democrats, quote, want to destroy the country and everything we have fought for and hold dear. They want to steal your liberty, your freedom. They want to control what you see and think and believe so they can control how you live. They want to enslave you to the weak, dependent, liberal victim ideology the point that you will not recognize this country or yourself. Uh, Deb, do you agree with Kimberly Guilfoyle's view? What is your response to that? Well, I, I didn't see that interview. I didn't. Uh, that was Monday night, Dave, did you say? Yes. Uh, so I missed that opportunity. Um, I think there is some uh, truth to some of the things she might have said if what you're saying is exactly what she said. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that probably feel that way um, as we watch uh, the Democrats and what their platforms are or appear to be. Uh, I do believe that there's a lot of people that feel the way that Kimberly expressed. Uh, they may not be expressing it in those same terms, um, but uh, I suspect there's a fair amount of sentiment in favor of what she said. A number of people are, are commenting on the level of the kind of apocalyptic imagery um, that in that speech and others. Uh, Jay, yeah. you've been to a lot of conventions. Give me your thoughts on this. 
Well, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about Kimberly Guilfoyle. Uh, she was married to the governor of California, a very liberal Democrat. Uh, she's been all over the place in a lot of things. And, you know, it was a little bit out of context. I mean, I'd, I'd rather talk about Tim Scott, who's a great American, who talked about the American dream that has been developed in South Carolina. And, and really, he represents the base of the party. And he shouted out in a quiet tone the important things that are important to American citizens. Kimberly was a little bit over the top. Uh, it was uh, a little bit of out, out of context with the rest of, and I think she was just trying to, to take an audience and, and be a little bit special and a little bit over the top. And I don't believe that she really expressed my feelings and my sentiments uh, in a way that a Herschel Walker or Tim Scott or many of the other speakers on the first night did. So I, I think she was an outlier. Uh, you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm there. And I think she was very excited to be in support of the president, as many of us are, and, and just took a little bit different tact at it. Let me ask, uh, Jay, you gave the invocation at the convention uh, in which you said, let us not be deceived by those that were once close to you, but have turned away in favor of embracing political ideology, yet claiming Catholic beliefs and words. Um, this has been interpreted to be a dig at Joe Biden, who is a practicing Catholic. Um, is that what it was? And, and do you question his faith? Well, I, I don't want to question anybody's faith because the only one that knows somebody's true person is, is God. So we don't want to challenge anybody's personal faith. But there are many people, uh, including the Speaker of the House, who want to use Catholicism as a menu item, that they want to pick and choose and, and really be the discerner of what Catholic values are. And I think we have to be very, very careful when we talk about religion and we talk about values. But there are many people who once embraced uh, the pro-life uh, platform of the Catholic, not the platform of the Catholic Church, but the, the beliefs of the Catholic Church, and they have turned away. Uh, when you are out professing nine-month abortions uh, to take the life of a child after nine months, you really are not following the Catholic faith as I understand it. Is anyone uh, advocating abortions at nine months? I don't believe that's legal. Uh, you might want to check with uh, H57 in Vermont. You might want to find uh, where the uh, Vice President Biden has spoken out on that, that he believes it's okay to take the life of a child at nine months. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has embraced that as well. So I think you might want to look into that a little bit more, David, and see where the trends are with this radical Democrat party. Uh, okay, I, a nine-month uh, that you're talking about taking the life of a, child. a, born, a, a fully born child at nine months. So yes. I, I'm not, I don't believe that's legal anywhere. But uh, well, fully formed, a birth of the day before it is born. The new laws allow for that child's life to be taken. I know that uh, um, Jansen Wilhite um, has to leave us shortly. So let me just ask uh, Jansen, one of the unusual things in this convention, this is the first time since 1856 that the Republican Party has not produced a party platform, instead passing a resolution renewing what delegates enacted in 2016 and pledging itself to Donald Trump 
why is there no new platform and, and what are the key priorities for a second Trump term? Well, thank you again. Good morning, David. Well, first off, to be specific uh, with respect to platform, we still have a platform. It's just that there was that uh, those within within the um, platform committee, because we still had a platform um, committee, made the determination. Also, based on the limited amount of people that that were able to go to Charlotte, that um, that the RNC was 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 satisfied with the platform as it as it presently st- stood that was ratified in 2016. However, certainly. Um, that's still up for, for, for potential review and revision um, before the 2024 convention. Um, this, was, this was similarly done with the Rules Committee in 2016 as well. There were rules that were ratified um, with respect to how um, the convention would be, would be handled. Those were, um, there were revisions made to that by the RNC in 2018, but those became the standing rules still for our convention 2020. Again, I think a lot of that just has to do with the, the mechanics and realities of, of COVID and, and uh, any kind of live um, 2020 convention. Um, it really wasn't impractical to be able to bring everybody in to do that. Um, however, um, the principles of the party ha- have not changed. Um, the, the platform that was established in 2016 was done in unison with the Trump campaign and, and, and working with them. And so the, the vision and perspectives of, of what were the principles um, for the party and for the president remained the same as he did in 2016. Hmm. But this is a first in 170 years to not have a new platform. A platform essentially lays out the priorities for the next term of the candidate. And is that unchanged from 2016? Because a lot has changed since 2016 in the country. Um, yes, it, uh, uh, well, things have changed. However, the principles still remain the same. Uh, the, the president still uh, is a supporter of law and order. He's still trying to protect our borders and also um, and providing protections uh, for, for, for all of us, including the least among us, including the unborn, including, which again, the, the, one of the things that, again, one of the many reasons why I support the president is his work on criminal justice reform. And I had the honor and pleasure to actually meet with the president um, prior to signing of the First Step Act and, and advocate on its behalf. And so, um, and, and I, I'm, I feel that m- much, again, of what the president advocated for in 2016 um, weren't just words, but were actions, and he'll continue to move forward with those principles. And so people can feel assured that voted for the president in 2016, his principles have been changed and either have um, the, the ideals and the principles of the Republican Party. Okay, let's um, welcome in uh, Anya Tineo. Uh, Anya, uh, welcome uh, into this Vermont conversation. Anya, let me just introduce you. Uh, You are a Vermont delegate to this year's Republican National Convention. You also ran uh, in the last two elections in Vermont as a candidate for Congress in Vermont. Um, Thanks for joining us here. There are now almost 180,000 Americans dead of the coronavirus, the highest death toll in the world. Uh, the U.S. has 5% of the global population, but 25% of the deaths. But there's hardly been a mention of the coronavirus at the convention. Um, how do you feel Donald Trump has handled the pandemic? I feel that Donald Trump has done his best to handle the pandemic, uh, starting from a position where there was no knowledge about it. It came up very quickly. And people feel that this has taken a very long time in responding 
but you have to understand the process of going from zero knowledge to where we are today was remarkably quickly. Jay, I wonder if I could get your thoughts on the president's response to the uh, pandemic. Yeah, I, I think we want to try to put things in perspective that this is something that was unprecedented. Um, and the, the virus that came from China uh, really jumped into our country very strongly. And I think if we look back at the response that the president has done, you know, he was criticized greatly for ending flights from China. He was criticized greatly for ending flights from Europe. And when you look back at what the projections were, there were many people saying there's going to be 2 million Americans that die from this pandemic. And if we, you know, the 170 something thousand that have died are, are very tragic and, and it's something that we wish never happened. But if you take a look at the dire projections that they predicted for this country, you know, and for uh, the United Kingdom, a half a million there and two million here. Okay, uh, his the, the, these are these are projections. Uh, we're talking about worst in the world by far. Other countries like South Korea, notably, had the uh, discovered its first coronavirus case on the same day as the U.S. and has had far fewer deaths and is now. Uh, open and business is resumed, schools have resumed, although they are also dealing with a, an outbreak. So in comparison to other countries, the U.S. response uh, is uh, among the worst in the world, and certainly no one uh, comes close in terms of the death toll. Well, so, there's, a difference, there's a difference there between the U.S. response being responsible for that uh, and the actualities of it. If we take a look at some of the hot spots and where most of the deaths were they were in uh, democrat controlled areas like new york city where the president gave them all the opportunity the world they set up javits center they set up the hospital ship that came and they decided not to use them so if we look at the president's response versus some of these governors that re responded irresponsibly early on and where the bulk of the deaths were i think we want to attribute some of that to these people that did not handle well. We're sending people to nursing homes where the deaths were taking place, and just the fact that they. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, you're 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 attributing this to party affiliation. The highest outbreaks right now are in Florida, Texas, uh, and in the Deep South, which where there are Republican governors. What does this have to do with uh, the party affiliation of the governor? You're we're talking about deaths of Americans. What we're talking about is deaths of American, and you're uh, portraying it as though those deaths can be attributed to the president in his response and the party officials within the Republican Party. If we want to take a better look at it, we're still talking about number of deaths here and not number of cases. And if you look at where the number of deaths are, those are located in areas where the response by the local officials was inappropriate. And the response in Florida and Texas, where they were some of the last to close down and some of the first to open up, and now are seeing tremendous spikes in deaths. Uh, they are not tremendous spikes in deaths. And if you look at percentages of population of deaths, they are California and New York, New Jersey, far outweigh any southern state. Uh, number of cases is one thing, but number of deaths uh, by far and away are in New York and not in the southern states that are run by Republicans. Okay, this, this uh, 
I think that all these states have had a very high number of deaths, and that's really where this question began. Why the U.S., this is one country, has had uh, the highest number of deaths in the world, and what that says about uh, the leadership of the, pan of the pandemic response. This has not been matched in any other country. We are where we are, uh, and I'm just wondering why you think that is. But let's move on. Uh, Deb, I want to bring you back into the conversation. Um, there has been a number of norms uh, that have uh, been broken at this convention. The norm of not using the White House for political uh, speeches or political conventions such as this. And of course, both Melania Trump and Donald Trump are using the White House. Uh, the norm of not having a sitting cabinet secretary uh, speak at a political convention. Uh, last night, we saw Secretary of State Mike Pompeo speak from an official State Department trip to Israel to speak at the convention. Do you feel that these norms should be uh, broken like this going forward at future conventions? Well, I, I think the precedent has already been set. There was a former president that did give a speech from the White House. Who was uh, that? Jay, do you remember hearing who that was last night? That was Franklin Roosevelt. Thank you. Yep. And, <coughs> excuse me, and I believe Obama's, uh, President Obama's um, uh, person said he was uh, President Obama's wingman. So I think some of that's already been broken, but we already know that we have an unconventional president, a non-politician president who's been extremely, extremely successful in three and a half years. Uh, unfortunately, the COVID-19 uh, put the brakes on the progress that was being made uh, by this president. And uh, I expect that it won't be long into his second term where we're back on track and uh, creating the jobs and moving the economy forward again. When you speak of the extreme success, I think many people will be surprised given the state of the economy. We're now at uh, have economic indicators that have not, we've not been seen since the Great Depression. Certainly, we are at a point that mirrors the recession of 2008. Um, there is, you know, millions of people unemployed. How are you calling that a success? Well, let me ask you, Dave, in the last seven months, how do you think we got to where we are today versus eight, seven or eight months ago when we had some of the lowest uh, unemployment rates in history uh, in terms of African-Americans, uh, non-college educated people, um, uh, women, I, the, the success was all there. And uh, I, I think it's obvious to everyone that the COVID uh, situation uh, put a halt to the work of the president on the nation. And um, I know most of us believe that uh, it won't be only a matter of a few months before we're back on track again. Anya Tinio, let's bring you back into the conversation. Um, yes, I hope the sound is better. Yes, the sound is much better. Thanks for calling back in. Uh, 
what is your feeling about the, the state of the economy, how we got there, and how we help the millions of un- Americans who are now unemployed? Well, I think that we have taken unprecedented steps to do so with the Paycheck Protection, um, the CARES Act, all of these things to help the people that are unemployed. And many people are now moving back into their jobs, uh, even virtually. So I believe that we are doing everything that we can to help those that have been affected by this economically. We economically had one of the strongest economies in the world, if not the strongest, before the coronavirus hit. And I don't think that it was by chance that that happened. I think that, you know, there are many questions and concerns about how this originated in China and how it spread throughout the world. And at the very least, it was negligence. And at the very most, it was a deliberate act. So I think that the economy was very strong, and it will be again as President Trump leads us forward. He is a businessman. He focuses on jobs. He understands economics better than most. And I look forward to being able to work with the new economy and to see the prosperity return once this virus has been eradicated. Uh, Jensen Wilhoyt, um, let's put this in the Vermont context. Um, you're participating in a, in a national convention, but the Republican governor of Vermont, of course, Phil Scott, has said that he will not be voting for Donald Trump and said that he is considering voting for Joe Biden, though he has not yet decided that. Um, what is your feeling about uh, Governor Scott's position and uh, decision not to support Donald Trump? Well, I don't support that decision. That doesn't mean, obviously, I I don't support our governor. I mean, we again, we are in a, we live in a, a nation in a state uh, that that has freedoms that you can you choose who to support. Um, the the governor has chosen not to support the president, but but I do support the president. Okay, uh, Deb. In the results from 2016, the presidential election, uh, Hillary Clinton got 55 percent of the vote. Uh, Donald Trump got 29%, and I believe that was the lowest uh, percentage that Trump received in any state. Uh, Why do you think it is that Vermonters do not support Donald Trump? Well, I think predominantly we're a blue state. That's the number one factor. So why would the blue people support the red people? Uh, That's, I mean, the math is there. Well, they support a Republican governor. Yes, um, our governor has the ability to cross over party lines and do what everyone believes is right for the state. Therefore, he gets support from the independents, the Republicans, and the Democrats. And why do you think Donald Trump doesn't do the same thing? Um, I think that that's a different um uh election uh the 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 president is seen as a different uh politician to the to all of the states i i think that um people are more driven to vote the party line on the presidential election and less so on the state level which is why our governor scott is so successful uh, people are willing to cross party lines to support the best governor for the state. When it comes to the national election, 
people are more likely to stay within their party uh, to vote for the president. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to uh, leave it there. I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Deb Bilodeau, the Vermont Part, uh, Republican Party Chair, Jay Shepard, Vice Chair of the Republican National Committee and the National Committeeman from Vermont, Anya Tinio, and Jansen Wilhoyt. Uh, thanks, all of you, uh, all delegates to the Republican National Convention. Uh, thanks so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Thank you, Dave. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And a clarification. Following my conversation with Vermont's Republican delegates, which was recorded this morning, I looked into the claim that a Vermont abortion rights bill known as H-57 permits abortions until the day before delivery. V.T. Digger fact-checked this claim from abortion opponents last year and rated it as, quote, mostly false. V.T. Digger concluded that this claim is, quote, seriously misleading, noting that, quote, Elected procedures in the final stages of pregnancy do not occur in Vermont and would not occur if H-57 passes, close quote. The bill, which prohibits the government from interfering in any way with the right to have an abortion, was signed into law by Republican Governor Phil Scott in June 2019. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.